this squared away here. Okay, thank you very much, worship team. Thank you so much, missions team. That was great. Really appreciate those updates and the opportunity to hear what's going on with the missionaries we support and the point that we sometimes forget just how well we have it in this country and how difficult it can be in other countries to live for Christ and to be a witness. And so really appreciate that encouragement. I hope it will give us all um, the encouragement we need to be more mindful of uh, them and their ministries and to pray for them uh, more faithfully. And to pray for our missions team as they seek to support them in various ways as well. So thank you very, very much. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this text... uh, It's obviously the next text in Corinthians that we're going to go through, but it also fits very well with what has been shared with us today with regard to the missionaries we support and their ministries. And so hopefully as we go through this today, you'll see the connections because Paul is going to be talking about his ministry uh, to um, Gentiles and his willingness to lay down his life in various ways to share the gospel. And hopefully that will be an encouragement to us as well. Um, there's a picture on our bedroom wall of Molly and David when they were, is that me? Am I popping? Shorten the wire. We'll see, see how it goes. I'll switch if I need to. But there's a picture, I'm not sure exactly how old uh, David and Molly are in this picture, but they're very young. And the picture, I believe, is of uh, David holding something that he really wanted, like a cookie or some ice cream or something, and and Molly is eating on his dessert there. And he's got this uh, look on his face of just, um, you know, it's kind of like, can you believe she's doing this? (laughs) She's eating my dessert. Um, But he was allowing her to do it. He wasn't taking it away from her, but he wasn't enjoying the fact that he was, in a sense, yielding his right to his dessert, to his sister. And the reality is that's a picture of life. There are many times we feel like we're having to give up something for someone else, but we're not really happy about it. Uh, We're having to yield our right or yield our life or or yield um, our freedom in various ways, and we're not necessarily happy campers about that. Well, what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is the fact that the Corinthians weren't very happy about that either. They didn't like the idea of having to yield their rights and give up their freedom. They um, saw it as their responsibility in in some sense to maintain their rights and to maintain their freedom even if it caused problems for other believers in the church. And so Paul is encouraging them to think Uh, more rightly about what love requires. It's not just about what my rights are or what my freedom is, but what does love require in this situation? I've entitled this Rights and Freedom and Love, Oh My, which is obviously a play off of Lions and Tigers and Bears, Oh My, from uh, The Wizard of Oz. As they're going down the yellow brick road, they're afraid of what they might encounter. And the reality is, for the Corinthians, they didn't like the idea of having to adjust their life because of other people. Uh, They felt like they'd been set free in Christ. 
They've been set free from what other people um, thought or what other people required of them. And so they wanted to tenaciously maintain their rights and their freedom. They, They saw other people's expectations and even other people's weaknesses as like lions and tigers and bears, a threat to their livelihood, a threat to their happiness. And so I think it's helpful to realize that we all can feel a little uncomfortable with having to go down a certain road. And yet the road that God calls us to go down is uh, the road that Christ went down, the road of laying down your life in order to love others. He said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Not in the sense of dying for the sins of others, but dying in order to love others in the way that God calls us to love others. I just wanted to um, try to put the the passage in uh, the the gospel context for us this morning. Um, It's helpful for me to always go back to what the Bible basically says in so many ways. There's so much more that could be said, but one thing we can say is that the Bible teaches us that God is good and he created us to be holy and happy in his love, which means in the enjoyment of his love for us, but also in loving in the way that he calls us to love. Obviously, we've rebelled as humans, men and women. We're naturally part of a fallen race in rebellion against God, and therefore uh, we, we aren't holy, and we can't be happy in the way that God has called us to be happy apart from a Savior, because we need to be reconciled to God, and then we need to be enabled by God to do what he calls us to do. And that's where the Lord Jesus comes in. He is Lord and he is an able and willing savior for us because he lived the life we can never live. He died the death we deserve to die. He rose from the dead as Lord over all and he offers forgiveness and eternal life to all those who will entrust themselves to him. And therefore he is the key to us actually enjoying the goodness of God and the love of God. And His life is a picture of the very thing that Paul is calling us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And then finally, when we think about what life should look like, if we've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus, God calls us to glorify him by trusting and loving with joy. That indeed, um, God does want us to be both holy and happy, and they go together. You can't be truly happy and not holy. And if you're truly holy, you will be happy because God is both fully holy, perfectly holy, and he's perfectly happy. And he's done what he's done in Jesus to call us into that happiness that he enjoys. Jesus said, I've I've told you these things that you might have my joy in you. And so whatever he calls us to do, whatever way he calls us to lay down our lives, whether it's in going to another country and sharing the gospel, or if it's just you know, getting out of our bed and serving people in our own family, or going across the street to our neighbor, or whatever it may be. However he calls us to lay down our lives, he calls us to trust him for our happiness in him, and to love people in the way that he calls us to, so that he wants us to love with joy, that we can lay down our, lay down our lives joyfully. The Bible says Jesus... Um, took upon himself 
God's call to lay down his life, he, he went to the cross with joy. Not the joy of what he was going to have to suffer, but the joy of what that suffering would bring. That there would be great, great benefit through it all. And so what I want us to see in this chapter is that there are, according to Paul, God-given rights. So the Corinthians aren't wrong in thinking about rights, but they're not right in how they're thinking about those rights. Because the priority is always love, regardless of what our rights may be, and therefore our freedom should serve what is truly the ultimate good. The book of uh, 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to a church in which he spent a year and a half preaching and teaching, and yet in the New Testament it is probably the most messed up church in the New Testament. And so um, there are all kinds of reasons why churches are in the condition they're in. It may not be that they had poor teaching. I mean, Paul, I'm sure, was... Uh, one of the best preachers and teachers ever, and yet First Corinthians was one of the most messed up churches for various reasons. And part of it was the challenge of the culture in which they were, just like Claudia talked about the challenge of living in Turkey. Um, there was a great challenge living in Corinth because of the immorality and the paganism in that city. And so what Paul does in First Corinthians is, in the first six chapters, he responds to reports about what's going on in the church. Then in chapter 7, he begins answering questions that the church uh, gives him. And in um, chapters 8 through 10, he is answering the question that they uh, submitted to him about eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols. And so chapter 9 is in the middle of this discussion. So we're sort of, sort of picking up in the middle of Paul's answer uh, to their question, can we eat meat sacrificed to idols and can we eat it even in a pagan temple? Can we do it, you know, uh, in any way, shape or form, in any context? And Paul is saying uh, basically yes and no. It kind of depends on whether or not love is really being pursued in the exercise of your freedom. So what I'd like to do is I'm going to read this in light of where we are time-wise. I'm going to read this section by section since uh, um, it's always um, a longer chapter when we try to take a chapter at a time. So let me read for us verses 1 through 11. And Paul is basically um, continuing a discussion that he started at the end of chapter 8 where he basically says, you know, you have to be careful that your freedom doesn't cause you to cause someone else to stumble. Because he says at the very end of chapter 8, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So, uh, if eating meat sacrificed to idols causes another brother to stumble, to sin against his own conscience because he's weak in his faith, then... Paul says we should be willing to give up that right, give up that freedom. And so in verse 1, he continues basically arguing um, that they need to embrace this kind of vision for love in the church. So he says in verse 1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh, excuse me, thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So the first point he's making, as you can see in verses 4 through 6, is that there are rights that people have. There are general rights that people have and there are rights that particular people have in certain circumstances. Like Paul is saying that as an apostle, don't I have rights? Um, he talks about the fact that uh, Cephas, who is an, which is another name for Peter, you know, Peter and the other apostles, uh, uh, they don't work. They're supported by churches. They can take along a believing wife and the churches support them. And, and so he says, do Barnabas and I, uh, are we the only ones that don't have the right to be married and and take a wife with us and we don't have a are we the only ones that don't have a right to actually be supported so that we can eat and drink without having to work as well as preach and teach and so he's arguing that as an apostle i do have rights that i could claim and so in one sense he's affirming what they were saying they were saying paul we have rights and he's saying you're right you have rights. I mean, it's just like in the Declaration of Independence. Um, we know that when our country um, fought against uh, Britain, uh, in the Declaration we said, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so our founding fathers argued that the reason why they had to um, resist the tyranny of the king of England was because of rights given to us by God. And the reality is that if you take God out of society and just try to have a secular culture, then you have no belief in an afterlife, you have no belief in a standard of right and wrong, you have no objective truth, and you have no God-given rights. You only have the right rights that the state gives you. And the state likes it that way because it's easier to control people if they can say the only right you deserve is the right that we give you. And yet uh, the Declaration of Independence speaks rightly when it says there is a God, he is creator of all things, and he has given people in general certain rights. And Paul is arguing that in certain positions, there are also rights that people have. And so he's affirming that reality. And 
reminding us that even um, everyday life uh, argues that um, there are rights that people have to certain kinds of compensation. So he uses the illustration of soldiers, you know, what soldier serves, uh, you know, on his own without being paid, uh, what person plants a vineyard but doesn't get any um, grapes or wine from that, what person tends a flock but doesn't benefit from that flock, what plowman or thresher uh, works the soil but doesn't get any fruit from that. He just you know, does it and doesn't care about that at all. So he says, you know, just common sense says if you invest in a certain way, you should get a certain kind of return. But he also says, even the Bible, doesn't even the Bible say that you have a right to a certain return on certain kinds of investment? And he brings up the uh, passage in Deuteronomy 25, 4, where God says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, which means he ought to benefit from his work. But Paul is using that to say that those who preach the gospel, those who are preachers and missionaries, ought to receive some support from their ministry. That if, um, if spiritual things are sown, if the gospel is preached, if the word of God is taught, then those who are preached to and taught should return financial support to those who do that. So he's basically arguing that I, as an apostle have a right to that kind of support. And it's important to understand that fundamentally before you move off of that to talk about, well, what about yielding your rights? First of all, you have to have legitimate rights before you can actually yield them. And so he's laying down that foundation. Um, Obviously, some people take it too far. The health and wealth gospel will use that idea to make false promises to people and to manipulate people. You know, you need to sow in my ministry so you can reap, you know, a hundredfold of that sort of thing. So it can be abused. Marxism is another kind of abuse of this in the sense that it basically robs people of the hope of proper compensation for their labor. It flattens out everything and it sucks out any motivation for actually Working And so Paul is, first of all, highlighting that there, there should be uh, a hope that Josh has when he goes to work, he's going to get a paycheck, that there's that appropriate expectation. And so that's the first thing he's saying is, you do have a point. I'm not denying that there aren't rights. But he goes on in the next section, verses 12 through 18, to say the priority is not always to maintain your rights, but always to love. And so in verse 12, he says, If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things, and I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. 
For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. There's a story about a preacher who uh, began receiving phone calls from little children. And these little children uh, called his number and they expected him to read them a fairy tale. And the reason was because a local library had established this dial-a-tale number. That if you dial this number as a child, um, someone would read you a fairy tale, a little story. But there was one digit difference between the library phone number and this pastor's phone number. And so the little children would get the numbers mixed up and they'd end up calling the pastor. And uh, at first the pastor tried to reason with the children and say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the library and I don't have any books to read or anything like that. And finally he decided, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to buy a little book. I'm going to buy the story of the three little pigs, keep it by my phone. And if I get a phone call, I'm just going to read it to the child that's on the phone. That's what he did. He could have complained. He could have said, I have a right not to be interrupted during my study of the Word of God to read a a book to a child. So, you know, change your number or whatever. He could have maintained his right not to be bothered, so to speak. But instead, he laid down his right, he sacrificed his time, and he read uh, books to children whenever they mistakenly called his number. What Paul is doing here is he's saying, you know, I could maintain my right or I could yield my right for the sake of love, which is what that pastor did. He thought it was a more loving thing in that situation to just read to the children. And so Paul highlights in verse 12, he says, we did not use this right. Or in verse 15, I have used none of these things. I haven't used any of these rights that I have. And then verse 18 um, it's my, basically says, it's my reward to not make full use of my right in the gospel. And so he's saying, yes, you do have rights, but the question is whether or not maintaining your right would actually further loving someone or whether it would be a hindrance to loving someone because the ultimate goal is not to be a hindrance to the love of others. That's why he says in verse 12, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Later on in the book, in chapter 13, Paul is going to say, if you do not love, you are nothing. You've done nothing. And so if you maintain your rights, but you don't love, then you haven't done anything. And so he's arguing that the ultimate goal in our life is to love others as God has loved us. And the issue isn't whether or not other people are loving me. The issue is how has God loved me? How is God loving me? And how can I show that to others? Uh, The word for hindrance there is, is a word for chopping up the road in front of somebody to making to make it more difficult to them to go down the road. 
We don't want to do things that make it more difficult for people to embrace the gospel or to, um, to be loved in various ways. Um, when it says that um, the Lord um, directed that preachers should receive their support uh, from those they worked with, uh, he, he's probably alluding to the fact that Jesus said when he sent out the 12 that they weren't to take anything with them. And the Lord Jesus said, for the worker is worthy of his support. So that's probably what he has in mind there. And Paul makes reference again to others who benefited from their work. He talks about the priests who worked in the, the um, tabernacle, that worked in the temple, that they were to receive portions that were sacrificed. And so they received from their labor. And yet Paul still says that um, he didn't want anyone to start doing anything different because he didn't want anyone to remove his boast. And what is his boast? Well, his boast is, we might see that as a negative thing, but what he's saying is, I don't want to stop doing what I'm doing because of why I'm doing it. I don't want to stop loving in the way that God has called me to love in this situation. He said for Peter and the other apostles, what they're doing is fine. God says that's what the way it should be. But for me, for me in my ministry, because of different things going on, I need to not hang on to this right. And therefore, I would rather die than stop laying down my life for the love of others. Uh, he says there's a great reward for doing it, but even if there was no reward, it's a stewardship that God has given to him. Well, then he goes on to talk a little bit more specifically about his ministry, and this especially applies uh, to what we were talking about earlier with regard to uh, missions. If you look at the latter part of the chapter, beginning in verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so Paul is arguing that he recognized that his freedom should be ultimately used for people's ultimate good. It's not just about maintaining my right to do what I want to do. The issue is how can I best love the people that I'm with, so to speak. Now, 
the interesting thing is he talks about winning people to Christ and he talks about saving some. And uh, some people would say that that sounds um, like Paul didn't believe in God's sovereignty. That Paul didn't believe in the fact that it's God who saves, not people. That it's ultimately up, ultimately up to God to change people's hearts and to enable them to believe in Christ is not something that we can do. Well, we know, God, we know that Paul believed all those things. He believed that God was sovereign over the salvation of men, and yet he still talks this way, which means we ought to talk that way. He still thought that way, so it means we ought to think this way, that there was, there was something significant about how we relate to people, or something significant about how we engage people, that it's not inconsequential, that God's sovereignty doesn't eliminate prayer, doesn't eliminate witness, doesn't eliminate whether or not I take into consideration where other people are in their lives in terms of how I live my life. A great illustration of this is uh, Hudson Taylor, the first missionary into inland China, established a China Inland Mission in 1865. And one of the things that uh, was interesting about his um, missionary ministry and garnered him a lot of criticism was the fact that he believed that the way to do what he was doing was to do what Jesus did, to incarnate himself, to take on human flesh and to uh, be one of us, so to speak. And so what he did and what he taught those who worked with him to do was that they were to adopt Chinese dress and many other things as well, that they were to become as Chinese. Paul in this passage talks about the fact that he became as a Jew so that he might win Jews, or he came as those who are without law, as without law, so that he might win those who are without law. To those who are weak, he became weak, so that he might win the weak. So basically, Hudson Taylor did the same thing. He said, what we're going to do is we're going to become as Chinese people that we might win Chinese people. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Is that really necessary? God's sovereign. Can't he just, you know, change their hearts? Yes, he can, and he does. That doesn't mean Paul did not understand that God calls us to love in a certain way, to lay down our lives like Christ did, and that is how God works to save people. That is how he works to change people, by as his people become more like Christ in loving others. That's how God indeed changes people's lives. And so um, there are people who criticized Hudson Taylor for being too Chinese. Um, there are other missionary groups um, working along the coast in China that um, had a real hard time with what Hudson Taylor was doing. And many of the Chinese people had a hard time with what they were doing. They, they called them the pigtail mission because um, Hudson Taylor went so far as to shave his head and to wear one of the braided pigtails that the Chinese people would wear. And um, someone has said Taylor uh, saw that the usual way of adhering to European customs would not win the hearts of the Chinese. As one of his early critics later wrote, 
his missionary colleagues dressed and behaved like European clergymen. They belonged visibly to the same world as the merchants and the administrators and the soldiers whom the Chinese collectively classed red-haired foreign devils. So the Chinese people saw the Europeans, those who were European, dressed as Europeans, talked like Europeans, all those things. They saw them as foreigners, and they obviously saw them as a threat, not a friend. You don't call your friend a red-haired devil. And so they realized, uh, that Hudson Taylor and those working with him, that the first step was obviously to get out of deviledom by looking and behaving as much like a Chinese as possible and thus approaching one's potential converts on their own terms. And so we have an illustration in Hudson Taylor of uh, what Paul is talking about in this passage. And so with regard to dress, they dress like the Chinese. With regard to food, they ate Chinese food and they used you know, Chinese implements uh, to do that. Um, they lived in Chinese housing which meant that they didn't live in the more comfortable housing uh, like the other European missionaries that lived along the coast. They lived in uh, situations that would be harder uh, to live in, and they followed Chinese customs. Husbands and wives were not to walk together arm in arm because that wasn't how the Chinese people did it. They had to walk in public like the Chinese people walked in public. Um, and they had to adopt their language. They had to learn the language. Hudson Taylor himself learned four different um, Chinese dialects and preached in all of them. And so, obviously, that took a lot of work and that took a lot of effort and a lot of sacrifice to do those things. Hudson Taylor would say that at that point in history, the biggest obstacle to the gospel was the fact that people were coming in and they saw them as trying to change them and make them non-Chinese. And as a result, it was a great hindrance to the gospel. Uh, Hudson Taylor said, I'm not peculiar, peculiar in holding the opinion that the foreign dress and carriage of missionary, missionaries, the foreign appearance of the chapels, and indeed the foreign air given to everything connected with religion have very largely hindered the rapid dissemination of the truth among the Chinese. And he says, why are we not adopting their customs? He says, it is not their denationalization, but their Christianization that we seek, that they want Chinese Christians that worship like the Chinese, that look like Chinese, that sound like the Chinese, but they worship Jesus. That is the goal. And he said in a, in a letter to some prospective missionaries, let us in everything unsinful become Chinese, that by all things we may save some, which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Let us adopt their custom, acquire their language, study to imitate their habits, and approximate to their diet as far as health and constitution will allow. Let us live in their houses, making no unnecessary alterations in external appearance, and only so far modifying internal arrangements as attention to health and efficiency for work absolutely require. And then he goes on to say, let the love of Christ constrain you. So for him, 
all these concessions, all this adaption uh, to Chinese culture was about letting the love of Christ constrain the missionaries. And he says, let there be no reservation. Give yourselves up fully and wholly to him whose you are and whom you wish to serve in this work. And then there can be no disappointment. So what he's saying is the issue isn't submission to the Chinese. It's submission to Christ. That's the issue. To adjust ourselves, to lay aside our rights, to restrict our freedom, to live in light of other people's expectations to some degree. It's not about submitting to them as a Christian. It's about submitting to Christ for the sake of love. That's what Paul is arguing in this chapter. And so what I'd like to do is uh, just with the few minutes we have left here, just let me highlight uh, some practical applications. Basically, uh, for us, obviously, uh, we're not missionaries in a foreign country, at least not at this point. Who knows what God might do in sending some of us at some point. But at this point, we're still to live our lives in the same way in principle. Uh, We don't have to go to a foreign country to do what Paul is talking about here. He was telling Corinthians in Corinth to live this way. So he wasn't saying when you go to the mission field, live this way. He was saying in your everyday life, live this way, even as I, as a missionary, so to speak, live this way. So that uh, when we pray for our missionaries, we're really to pray for them as we pray for ourselves along these lines. And so the first thing I just want to highlight is that the issue of demanding or not our rights is really a complex thing. Because if you look at what Paul did in the book of Acts, sometimes he held on to his rights and sometimes he set aside his rights. But it was all based on whether or not love uh, required him to do that. And so in Philippi, he was beaten before he said anything about being a Roman citizen. But later on, before he was uh, about to be scourged, he let them know he was a Roman citizen and they did not scourge him. So in one one situation, he did not hold on to his right. In another situation, he did. But in both cases, it was the issue of love. We can ask ourselves, so what about in certain practical situations like like between husbands and wives? Can a husband say, "It's, it's my right for my wife to submit to me? Sure, God says so. And the wife could say, well, it's my right for my husband to love me like Christ. Right. Yeah, that's what God says should happen. And there's a sense in which that is a right. But what what if uh, your wife isn't doing that and your husband isn't doing that? Do you have a right not to do what God calls you to do in loving them? No. And there's a sense in which you have to release that right in order to do what God calls you to do. And that's why I think Peter says what he says in 1 Peter 3 when he says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, be submissive anyway. Why? That they may be one without a word. Same thing that Paul is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 9, the winning of them to Christ, the winning of them to the way of Christ, whatever it may be, um, we may realize, you know, there's a sense in which I have a right to be treated in a certain way, 
But if I'm not treated in that way, I'm still to love. I'm still to, in a sense, yield my right and pursue love. Second thing is um, we fear that if we give up our rights and our freedoms, we're going to miss out. FOMO, fear of missing out. And I think that a lot of time is the case. What if I don't get any, any return? What if my husband isn't one by my submission? What, what if uh, I do the right thing and love this person and they just continue not uh, doing what they're supposed to do? Uh, what if there is just, you know, it doesn't do what I really wanted it to do by my sacrifice? Well, I think the Lord Jesus kind of addresses that in Luke 14 when he talks about giving a banquet for people who can't repay you. He says, um, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So what does God say? He says, yield your rights, restrict your freedom. It may not produce the fruit you want it to produce in this life, so to speak, but you will not get the short end of the stick. You will not miss out. God will see to it that you get a greater reward than you can ever imagine, even if it doesn't come from or through the person that you might be uh, serving or yielding to in various ways. God sees your sacrifice. He sees what you're doing to love, and he will reward us for that. Then the third application is just handling expectations. The reality is the, uh, you know, with Hudson Taylor, the Chinese people had a certain uh, expectation with regard to the foreigners. They didn't like the fact that they didn't embrace their customs and their dress and their food, and it was offensive to them. And so what did Hudson Taylor say? That's tough. You know, I don't have to dress like that. I don't have to eat like that. No, that's not what he said. He accommodated himself to their expectations that he might overcome the hindrance and love them. So all of us have people in our lives that expect certain things. They have certain expectations, certain, quote, requirements for our relationship with them. And we might um, feel like, you know, well, maybe I don't want to live up to those expectations or meet those requirements to be in relationship with them. Because I don't have to. God doesn't say I have to do that. True. It doesn't say you have to do that in particular, but it does say you have to love. And so you have to say, okay, what does love require in this situation? And so in one sense, Paul could say in Romans 15, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification, for even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So in one sense, Paul could say, we should live to please others for their edification, for their, for their spiritual good. But he'd also say in Galatians 1, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So which is it, Paul? Are you living to please men or not? So it all depends on what the loving thing to do is. The loving thing to do is not to please them by not preaching the gospel and not living like Christ says, I'm not going to please them. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to live like Christ. But if the situation calls for me to 
love them in a way that doesn't deny the gospel and doesn't deny what God has called me to do, but actually just calls me to, to deny myself, take up my cross and follow Christ, then I will live to please them for their spiritual good, for whatever good might be in view. Well, ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, and I'll wrap up with this, the yielding of our rights to others for love is yielding ourselves to God because of his love to us. It's all about God's love for us in Christ and how we respond to that. Uh, There's a poem by William Cooper uh, called Submission. And it goes like this. It says, O Lord, my best desire fulfill and help me to resign life, health, and comfort to thy will and make thy pleasure mine. Why would I shrink at thy command whose love forbids my fears or tremble at the gracious hand that wipes away my tears? No, rather let me freely yield what most I prize to thee, who never has a good withheld or will withhold from me. Thy favor all my journey through thou art engaged to grant. What else I want or think I do, tis better still to want. Wisdom and mercy guide my way, shall I resist them both? A poor blind creature of the day and crushed before the moth. But all my inward spirit cries, still bind me to thy sway or thy rule. Else the next cloud that veils the skies drives all these thoughts away. So what he's saying is, the most important place I can be is in submission to God and his will. And in this context, for the sake of love, submission to God is my happy place. It's your happy place. It's the pursuit of true happiness in God, and it's the pursuit of the love of others and their happiness in God as well. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this uh, time to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to, to get some encouragement. Father, we all, whether we're missionaries or not, uh, have to be challenged each day with what does it look like to love this person or to love in this situation and what are my rights and what are my freedoms and will, will I lay down my right, will I lay down my freedom, will I, will I hold on to Christ, will I let go of things that are a hindrance to others or that uh, fail to love them as I should, uh, how will I deal with expectations, how will I deal with my own desires for certain things to be certain ways. Am I ready to take up my cross, um, to deny myself, to die that I might follow Christ and pursue my happiness in Christ in that way, pursue others' happiness in Christ in that way? So, Father, I pray that somehow that you would speak to each person here today, that you'd help us to ask the question, am I loving people in my life in this way? And secondly, am I reconciled to God or do I need to be reconciled to God? And I pray that you'd speak to our hearts and that you'd meet the deepest needs of our heart for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.